0: Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and thanks to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This week's show starts with a message from the marketing team that got Noto Japan to buy a giant squid with its corona money, who has just recently changed its name to the marketing team that sold the statue of a giant squid.
1: Uh, hi, yeah, uh, well, we, yeah, we can't believe it either. Uh, we're gonna take a break, I'm off to the Arctic, gonna go try sell some snow, but when I'm back, give us a call. <laughs>
0: Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Chelsea Sandy sheeter Japanese social activism historian, author of Coed Revolution, whose seminal work on the desegregation of the Japanese riverboat industry forever changed the way we think about members-only boat clubs. Chelsea, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Last week, we did a controversial show on the definition of visual K, and were disappointed to discover that literally no one got mad at us for it online. That's why Chelsea is helping us up the stakes this week with a talk about efforts to revise history and erase Japanese war crimes. Then hopefully next week, we can talk about the right-wing backlash that followed said talk. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali?
1: Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is the Sumida River Cruise in Tokyo, whose port operators, in anticipation of the increase in foreign visitors, have made things considerably easier for them by allowing, finally,
0: full-width as well as half-width boats. Also, the popular annual river cruise concert Yotto Boy Session, or as it's commonly called Yobo Session, had to shut down its reservation website after being overwhelmed with traffic for some unknown reason. We'll look into that later. But first, soap. Talk.
1: Chelsea, you join us just months after your book Coed Revolution was published. How glad are you that you didn't have to do a book tour by virtue of the fact that you still can't move anywhere.
2: <laughs> it, feels very, it feels very surreal. I, I wish I could talk to people about it in person because I have kind of this empty nest feeling. Like the mm-hmm. book is out having conversations with other people. I don't know anything about it. It doesn't call, doesn't even come home to do laundry. <laughs>
1: you <know? laughs> and uh, your book focuses on the 1960s and 1970s kind of social movements. And you try to kind of unpack the lost female voices in, in that era. And I think this, you know, this topic of student activism is just as live now uh, as it is back in the 1960s. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't these big, enormous, defining revolutionary moments like there was then, but there are certainly in the past two years, we've had huge ones on uh, race, race equality, on the environment. And did you see the same problems that certain voices are suppressed in these movements occurring now as they did in the 60s and 70s?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that there are maybe two parts to your question because I'm writing about the student movement in Japan Mm. uh, in the 1960s, um, which is often left out of this story. When I would tell people that I work on the student movement in Japan in the 1960s, people would be like, oh, Japan had a 1960s, you know, had a student movement, had a new left, had feminism. Mm. That part of the question is uh, there is a student movement in places like the U.S. or the U.K. or or Europe, um, elsewhere but not really in Japan. Um, And there are the same problems in Japan, especially if you start talking about environmental problems Mm. or even the Mm. the fate of higher education or um, uh, racism, sexism, these things. So, uh, yeah, I think these issues are uh, very alive today. And I think that's because young people are really at this pressure point between social expectations are supposed to do a certain thing to get some kind of success in the future. Um, but then also they're facing the fact that the kind of future's up to them and they're thinking about these things in this different way. And I think that that tends to feed a lot of social of uh, student movements. Um, but then the question is why that's not really happening in Japan.
0: Do you think that there's a difference between people being concerned with politics and being politically active?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think that What interested me in doing this research is that I kind of entered into the research thinking naively there was a social movement. There were a lot of activists in the 1960s, 1970s in Japan, and there aren't now. And the fact is that there are always activists being activists. It's just how much of a platform they get, how much uh, they're able to um, attract uh, a larger
0: movement. What do you think the issues are that prevent people from being aware of political activism in Japan. I think a lot of people have the idea that Japan is not politically active, that there is yeah. no movement. Yeah.
2: Well, I, th- I think, and this may be self-serving, and this may be me uh, being a hammer looking for a nail, but I do think that if we look at the 1960s and early 1970s in Japan and see uh, how vigorous that movement was, but then also how extremist it both was, And also how extremist it became painted or represented as uh, you get the sense of why people who are activists in Japan are actually very shy of using the word katsudoka or Mm. activist. It Mm. sounds very extremist.
0: It's so funny that you preface that by using the phrase hammer looking for a nail, because in Japan, it's the nail that sticks out like that gets <laughs> hammered
2: down. Oh, my God. I did. I... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I See, I am. I am. I'm the hammer that is looking for the nail that is sticking up so I can uh, pull up some other nails to help them stick up some more.
0: <laughs> and and so help them form a out. union.
2: Yeah. I mean, the hammer has two sides. You can nail it down, but you can also kind of, you know, screw it up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, now, now, that, now that hammer looks a bit more like a sickle the narrative works <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. so you have kind of a unique perspective on, on Japan issues because of your, uh, your historical uh, scholarship and I noticed on Twitter that you had a different take on the um, you had a different experience of that Takarajimasha ad that went out yeah. that yeah. Uh, politics is killing us ad
2: yeah well I mean I just uh, I realized that my exposure is very uh, curated I suppose, because very soon after that ad came out, many people commented on it. I mean, it's very gripping, it's graphically gripping. Uh, historians immediately recognize the font. Uh, the kanji for Tatakao is, right, right. is a pre war kanji. Um, and so, you know, within hours, you know, people had gone back and found the source of the photograph. And and clarified, it's not bamboo spears. It's uh, Naginata. Oh my gosh, well, I Naginata. can't remember. Yeah, the... yeah, Naginata. Naginata. Yeah, um, uh, and that just taught me that I have I have cura- very carefully curated my uh, Twitter feed. I suppose.
1: <laughs> to be full of pedants
0: well it's huge that that advertisement even went out that that this major corporation was willing to take such a political stance in such a public way
2: yes i i am very i've been following the olympics very carefully because of course historians of the 1964 olympics see it as a moment of pushing away sometimes forcibly pushing away the wartime memory, pushing homeless war veterans off the street and making sure maimed bodies were kind of cleared from the street and paving the way toward this image of just simply an affluent post-war peace-loving Japan. Um, And so it's quite interesting to reflect upon uh, this Olympics as potentially as as being a, a moment that Many people seem quite angry about this. I don't know. This is very unscientific, but I've been asking my neighbors, and I I can't find a single neighbor in my Shtamachi area who is really excited about hosting these Olympics.
1: Well, that is the thing, is that I genuinely don't think there is anybody left that is making a
0: positive case for the Olympics.
1: Dentsu? (laughs) Well, I I suppose.
0: That's not a case of the Olympics. I I heard a lot of people related to the Olympics are expected to be positive. (laughs) (laughs) Good.
1: Ended on a joke. Thank you. Uh, people that are rewarding us for that kind of absolute top-tier humor uh, are the people that become monthly members. And this week, we need to thank Rick, who bought us five coffees. Thank you very much, Rick, for that.
0: Do we? Do we? Because uh, I bought a bicycle from him before he moved back to America. So, so he still got 30 of my dollars.
1: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Well, well, in that case, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> uh, but he um, he bought five coffees and he said, "You guys are all right, I guess," which is fine. We're kind of used to this uh, by now, you know. You take with one hand and give with the other. But maybe Rick felt bad about it because then, just moments later, he then became a member. Oh, uh, in that so, case, he's up on me. Yeah, free well, bike. Anyway, Thank if you, you want Rick. to, <laughs> ding ding. Uh, so um, yeah, if you want to, um, if you want to either buy us a coffee or indeed a bike. Uh, we'll take uh, we'll take any any form of transportation, uh, as long as it's not buoyant. Uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash japan by River Cruise. Thank you very much to everyone that supports the show. Bobby Judo, shall we take a look at the news? Bobby Judo, what's in the news? This well, week?
0: the Olympics is almost upon us, maybe. And while it's an event that's always held up as a bastion of international harmony, it actually always tends to put a spotlight on international tensions. Uh, living in Japan, I always notice how things like the territorial disputes between Japan and South Korea get litigated in the Olympic venue stands. Chelsea, <laughs> right. in terms of Japan and South Korean relations, what are some of the tensions that are kind of simmering in the background this time around?
2: Yeah, well, from my my own uh, recent experience, I would have to say it's the ongoing Uh, issues around Japan's colonial legacies in the Korean Peninsula, yeah, uh, particularly surrounding uh, the case of the uh, so-called comfort women, Mm. or former uh, ianfu, which is a a euphemistic term that was used during the wartime to talk about uh, women who were employed in a system of uh, basically sexual slavery, because uh, whether they originally volunteered or didn't, whether they got payment or didn't, yeah. Uh, they uh, could not leave their post. Uh, They were coerced. Um, And uh, some of them are still living. Some of them still put cases through South Korean courts. And this really uh, tends to put the Japanese government on the defensive. And the Japanese government tends to play a a certain game to its domestic audience, Mm -hmm. and especially uh, kind of right-wing Ultra-nationalist, historical revisionist audience, while at the same time, to the international audience, still saying it upholds the 1993 Kono statement, which recognized coercion and promised to remember the history of
1: the coercion of comfort women.
0: So basically, a lot is going on then. Yeah, uh. there's
1: basically <laughs> a lot going on, and, and we're at the stage where I mean, like, like you, you just said. It's very easy if you don't know much about this to kind of think, oh, well, I kind of thought this was dealt with. Right. Like I vaguely remember that like there was some statement by the Japanese and that was accepted. And, you know, like uh, the women which are still alive are getting uh, some monetary compensation and something which at least alludes to an apology. Yeah.
0: More than more than that. I remember that every time Japan says every time Korea says we demand an apology or we demand uh, reparations, uh, Japan says we already did it. We already did it.
2: Yeah. I mean, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website has been revised recently to say that there there was no coercion in the English site as well as in the Japanese site. Um, and, I, you know, and the Kono statement has not been actively retracted. And whenever uh, Abe, when he was prime minister and Suga, when he was uh, in Abe's cabinet, when they were asked point blank if the Japanese government was going to reverse or step back from the Kono statement, they've said, no, 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 absolutely not. Um, so th- there is a tension at work there um already. Yeah.
1: While I'm sure we'll talk about kind of the specifics and what gestures have been done or rather not done in the, in the very recent past, this seems to speak to just a general problem that governments have with having to confront their past. Yes. And it seems that it should be the easiest thing to do to a government that has no personal responsibility for this issue to go, yeah, we unequivocally apologise for something real bad that happened a long time ago that we had nothing to do with. It costs them nothing other than some kind of political capital, yeah. obviously. That's yeah. got to be the reason why they're not yeah. doing it. What are the the levers that a government can pull? Obviously, they can apologise, they could give money, mm-hmm. they, they could make some proactive steps to, I don't know, to, to, to educate. I mean, what, what are people what are people in the government so scared of doing
2: i i think it comes down to the education i mean there there has been an apology um the apology is of questionable sincerity when periodically you have uh politicians undermining said apology Mm. um
1: (laughs) right right. bobby i'm really sorry for eating your crisps as i'm tucking into this third (laughs) bag of crisps
2: exactly i mean um and there have been a lot of discussions about what makes a good apology and the Japanese government has not followed really any of those guidelines. Um, in terms of the money, the Asian Women's Fund uh, was a was a private fund and the Japanese government did contribute money to that, which was then dispersed to many former comfort women. Um, many comfort women refused to take it because it also gathered money from many private citizens. So it was this idea that it was a way to kind of, address the guilt felt by individual Japanese citizens without addressing government responsibility
0: without the government taking the blame
2: yeah exactly and um whenever I teach about this to my students um who most of whom are are Japanese and many of whom were raised in Japan but interestingly many of who grew up in Asia and have very different stories about their experience with this. But I asked them if they've heard about the comfort women and if so, where did they learn about it? And many of them say, well, really, not really in school. Maybe there was a line in a book mostly from the news. And to me, that's a failure of that problem for education. Mm -hmm. And so then for me, that question is, well, what does it cost the government? And this is when history is really interesting is because every subject perhaps is rather ideological. But when you think about in school, when you learn history it is very different than the way you learn science or you learn math because it's usually framed around your national history and mm-hmm. it's usually framed yes. with this idea that you're going to have this certain kind of national identity. And it's not framed around what professional historians do which is deal with sources and evidence, right? It's really kind of framed on like, you should know your founding fathers and you should like you know, know these dates and events and um, it's either like so deadly dull and so boring and so many just facts and events that people learn to hate it, or it can be just this heritage history. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, a, I think that's, that's the sticky wicket is like actually inserting it into education. Uh, every time there's been a, an attempt to get more education about wartime militarism in Japan, the backlash has been so incredible in this country
0: it's interesting this idea of how strongly my political ideology in a country is tied into the way it teaches its history because as an american living in japan one of the things that japanese people regularly want me to talk about is what i learned about world war ii in in america
2: Ah, yeah i
0: get this question all the time like what do american textbooks say about hiroshima and nagasaki and pearl harbor yeah and and I have to go, I'm American. you know we don't have history textbooks anymore, <laughs>
2: <laughs> actually, actually, according to some studies by some historians, young people don't even learn history in school anyways, like they learn it from t v and movies and grandparents, and like that's it, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's like there's also kind of this part where you're like, well, why are we worrying about what you're learning in school? Um but I mean, there is this kind of um uh and that question often even gets framed around Hiroshima or the atomic bomb. When I mean the Tokyo fire bombings, fire bombing, yeah. seems to be this the the kind of original war crime that that paved the way to allowing, you know, forces in, in in America to imagine dropping an atomic bomb on a city.
1: The thing that I really struggle to understand is what Japanese nationalists think they can gain by suppressing this issue. Like what? What is it that motivates them?
2: In some senses, to me, it's like the biggest case of ky kuki yomenai, where it's just like you're going to go after statues of young women, like uh, that are that are that are popping up around the world. Like it's just bad from a public relations uh, perspective. Um, a word I see bandied around a lot um, by you know denialists or historical revisionists is is honor. Um, this idea of national honor um and so that seems to be involved in it and i and I also just think that that there's this not just a ethno nationalist current but also a misogynist current, mm. where it's like we can't believe women like women lie right you're gonna believe this yeah. uneducated uh you know Malaysian woman. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you could draw parallels here with revisionist history in in America, too. The idea of uh, the heritage of the Confederacy, where people use words like pride or honor or history. But among those people, there's a small segment of them, and it might be small, but there's a segment who what it's about is racism. Mm -hmm. And so in, in terms of, you know, ultra right wing Japanese nationalists who don't want to acknowledge the comfort women, a lot of it is Either misogyny or hatred of Korean people.
2: Mm, very yeah. I have been exposed to a level of anti-Korean hatred that um I had heard existed um but wasn't completely aware of and and you know to to the extent you know my kid came home from daycare and was like, Oh, Dadarikun is Korean. And I know that. I know that his dad is Korean. I know that uh his grandma's Korean. He speaks Korean with them. And um, but to the point where I was like, what is the context in which you heard that? Because right. it could just be this like, <laughs> he's Korean. That's yeah. cool. Cause I'm, you know, cause I speak English at home. Um, or it could be like, oh, he's Korean. And like, I mm. I have uh gotten very um Sensitized to that, and I mean, I think that's that's uh, uh good because there are people for whom calling someone Korean enough is a, is an insult.
1: Mm. Is the suggestion then that there are some people who are maybe like pleased this happened more more than just they're denying it ever happened? They're saying yeah, and and this this is fine.
2: Well, I think that this is the issue that comes up, and I think the comfort woman is important. For global history and global law, so this legal precedent of the comfort women case becomes important to legal cases in Rwanda and in uh, Ugo- former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, right? Um, so, being able to understand gendered violence, sexual violence uh, during wartime is important for law now uh and there are people who say well war is hell whatever but there have there in our modern period we've never not had laws about mm. warfare i did a double negative we've always had war- laws about what mm. you can and can't do in warfare um and i so to say like well war is hell it's all out the window or of course women get raped during war because women are there to rape um that i just don't think that's an adequate argument uh, for why we should not try to avoid that.
0: Yeah. I, I wouldn't be we're, we're sure close. that people were pleased that it happened. I think saying that they weren't coerced, they did it willingly, might feed into an argument that some of those people might want to make about you know comparative morality or quality of the people yeah. in Korea yeah. compared to Japan.
2: To, to be clear, so first of all, comfort women were from all of the occupied terity, territories under military Japan control. Mm. And it really becomes about the Korean women um, because this has become a big case taken up by the South Korean government. Um, But there were uh, Indonesian comfort women, there were Japanese comfort women, uh, there were Dutch comfort women. Tellingly, only the Dutch comfort women got justice in the immediate post-war period, Mm. probably because they were white women and it was more about racial boundaries rather than right. about women.
1: And was this the the Dutch government that, that spearheaded yes, this?
2: Yes, these were uh, the trials that were held immediately in the territories when troops came in and they, right. and they did kind of field trials.
1: And, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that while Korea has taken up this mantle and, and is using the comfort women issue to s- score some kind of political points, Singapore and Malaysia and a s- bunch of other countries could also be doing this on behalf of women that suffered this injustice.
2: Yes, they could. And I mean, I think that this is also an important moment to think about why there was a lag. It took feminism as a transnational movement and it took democratization in South Korea for this to become uh, an issue that was spoken about that, Women were empowered to speak about it. Many, many women, most former comfort women have never spoken about it. And again, there's a diversity of experiences in terms of regions, also in terms of coercion. Mm. And I mean, some women uh, may have volunteered. And we also have to think about volunteering in the historical context where it's like, who did anything voluntarily Mm. during the wartime period there are all kinds of levels of coercion
0: okay so let's do something that we've never ever done before on this podcast and imagine a world where things get better um what should a government do well like what are the lessons to learn and in an ideal situation where there aren't people saying you know this is korean propaganda this never happened what is the good example for a country that's committed an atrocity to follow in rectifying the atrocity
2: oh gosh, I mean, I think that that is a millions millions in dollar question, actually in a cynical way, like in I think terms that of, sometimes like, it becomes money. it becomes payments but I, <laughs> yeah, but I, but i don't i don't think payments I, I think that and especially like the surviving comfort women are quite old uh, at this point, it is about. Preserving this history and the memory of what happened to them, and uh, I think that when I teach students about this, I mean there there are many ultranationalists in Japan who say that this is a masochistic history, and they don't want to teach Japanese young people a masochistic history. But when I have had students who are receptive to this history and they want to learn more, and I do not force this down their throats, um, because I believe in source-based, evidence-based uh learning and i encourage students who are interested in this to look at sources and look at evidence students who have been become interested in this and have continued to do some research about this i don't believe that they have found this to be masochistic or self-flagellation i mean it, they didn't do this and even if they had been a a, a 17-year-old boy mm. recruited into the army and then they had raped a comfort woman they would would also not necessarily be the person that I want to hold accountable. It's like wanting to hold people in in power accountable. Um, And so I would say Mm -hmm. it's about holding people in power accountable um, and also about being able to see uh, links and causes across borders because I think it's very empowering for many of my young female students to try to think about this and to read things being published by young women in South Korea now who think about – Comfort women and Me Too and sexual harassment and sexual violence in South Korea today, alongside comfort women.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I look at the example set by countries like Germany, where they confront the history of the Holocaust with very very strict regimented uh, policies to prevent those kinds of movements again in the future, and it's it's so it's cool. a, it's so effective that there's more neo-nazism in america than there is in germany well quite and that is a point of optimism that you said that there's
1: a generation of young female scholars that might be engaged by this issue
2: and male scholars i I would like to point out that probably the leading scholar historian of of the comfort women issue is a a japanese man yoshimi yoshiaki i mean this is not uh just about that i just think that the empowerment angle comes from um Young women who live in sexist societies today, South Mm. Korea has its problems, Uh, Japan has its problems, Um, uh, and for young women coming up in these societies to be able to uh, see these problems through a historical lens and feel empowered by certain coming together of women across generations and across borders to hold people accountable. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. That coming together of women happened at a a very particular moment when Ramseyer published that article.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about, so without giving him too much attention because he doesn't deserve it, what I really want to know is what is it about ultra-conservative white men that are drawn to ultra-conservative Japanese nationalism?
2: I'm going to ask you two. I mean, I know you're not you're not ultra conservative white men, but I do. So I'm raising a white boy in Japan, and I see the ambivalence towards his whiteness, towards his maleness, mm. and he's quite small. And <laughs> I heard how but old I'm, is he? I'm only four, oh, almost okay. five. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm I'm very. Um, and maybe too aware of these things um no I, my I, my
0: my girls are just about to turn 6 and i like they constantly surprise me with the things that i see them processing that i go this is much yeah. much more deeper and complicated than i expected a 6 year old to have to process
2: yeah yeah i mean my kid told me the other day he's like mom japanese people have english minds and english people have japanese minds and just no no further elaboration well, um, I think he meant English language, sorry, Ollie. He just doesn't really understand that America, English, you know, he doesn't right. oh, okay. know that yet. Um, but okay. Ramsay, one of the qualifications he often lists is that he went to kindergarten in Japan. And so um, my child also came to me and told me, Mama, I know everything about Japan because I was born in Japan. And I was like, no.
0: yeah, <laughs> You're gonna need just better citation dip- practices, kid. <laughs>
1: Thanks very much for listening to this episode 83 of Japan by River Cruise. Thanks as ever to those who subscribe to the show. If you haven't already, then please do so. We release a new episode
0: every single week. Thank you to our guest this week, Chelsea Sandy sheeter Chelsea, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, We have you on record somewhere as saying that you think it's okay to have contentious discussion and awkward conversation. So please come back.
2: Sure. I would love some more contentious discussion, awkward conversation. Uh, My introduction of my book is uh, for free online, and please check out the fact-checking report um, I did with a team of historians of the Ramsair article as well.
0: We will link it in the notes, and we will see you next week.